the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, my name's Richard Moore. I'm with Lionel Burney. Hello, Richard. And I was physically with Daniel Freib last week, but we are apart again, but he's there. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Richard. Back from Paris-Nice. I shuddered at the thought of such intimacy there, the way you described it, but anyway. <laughs> that was very nice, wasn't it? We, we yeah. spoke last week um, in hushed tones in the lobby of a hotel in Orléans, very early in the morning. Um how was the rest of Paris-Nice for you? Well, it was an exciting race, wasn't it? I mean, we will go on to discuss this later in the episode, but before we were recording, Lionel and I were discussing how Paris-Nice always crescendos nicely, doesn't it? It has a very distinct, very easy, easily identifiable kind of narrative, even when you look at the stages before the race even starts. And sure enough, the drama does kind of peak towards the end of the week, particularly in a week when... You know, so many riders were dropping out and the, a lot of teams by the end of the week were down to the bare bones. And it was a, a, a question for the GC guys of, well, how many how many resources their respective teams had left, really. You avoided the Paris-Nice Lurgy because it affected riders, but staff as well, journalists, press officers, it seemed to go around everybody. I can't, it was, it was a, not COVID apparently, but a kind of flu, is that right? I thought you were referring to the French coffee lurgy. <laughs> I, I said to a couple of people who who told me that I didn't need to wear a mask anymore in France by the end of the week, that the mask, well, the, the primary purpose of the mask now is to keep French coffee out of my mouth. Um, no, an extra no, filter, extra filtered I, yes, coffee. I didn't succumb to the lurgy, Rich, no. That's, that's a relief for us. Well, in this episode, this is the first of two this week, and this episode we're going to be looking back largely and in the next episode coming a little bit later this week we're going to be looking forward largely i mean we're going to be reviewing the action in Pyrenees and terreno adriatico um a tale of two slovenians uh for the the this episode you know lionel like that i think that's that's gone into his provisional episode titles uh file and in the next episode coming later in the week we're going to be looking ahead to milan san remo there'll be a bit of overlap because a lot of what's happened in the last week obviously informs uh, our predictions for milan san remo but we'll be looking ahead to that in the next episode and uh, and we'll also um, be producing another episode at the weekend won't we an instant reaction to milan san remo the first of several of these this spring um a, a little spin-off series arrive and uh, that will be looking at Milan San Remo just after it's finished. So that should be out for uh, any instant analysis. But before all of that, do you have a news roundup for us, please, Lionel? I have indeed, Richard. Uh, first of all, though, just picking up on something that you mentioned in last week's episode, I was kicking myself that I didn't remember this at the time because you were referring to uh, Kate Wagner uh, had mentioned the Burger King logo on the back of the EOLO team's shorts. And I remembered... In the dim and distant past, McDonald's had also sponsored cycling teams. They sponsored the Amore Vita team at some point and also the Pulte team, the Italian Pulte team around the turn of the century, 99 or 2000, I think Richard Vironk era Pulte. I mean, the, the thing that struck me about that was that the Pulte team rode Fausto copy bikes and one of their co-sponsors was McDonald's. And I just thought that as kind of brands, they don't really go together too well, I didn't think maybe, I don't know. But uh, yeah, 
Burger King's sponsorship of Eolo is uh, not unprecedented in the sense that a burger chain has been involved in cycling before. Waiting for Daniel to come in here with with some other Uh, Um, well, Chipotle, Chipotle, of course, was a high class fast food outlet, isn't it? Not a burger. They sponsored. Not a burger. That no, it's not a burger. It's not a burger. Um, Pulte McDonald's. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, there's photographic evidence of the logo just on the top of the chest. Not a big sponsor. It's probably in the spirit of Italian teams. It was probably a McDonald's. on a ring road it near was a, Emilio, yes. uh, near Bologna or something. Just the franchisee was a big cycling fan, and, and I don't think the oh, corporation. I see it now, Lionel. I was, see it. There you go. It's, uh, did the did the Pulte riders used to Hoover up the the Big Macs? <laughs> Pulte famously made Hoovers and still do make Hoovers. I think, don't they? Yeah. In a, in, a, in a forthcoming book to appear in June, there's a story about what else Pulte vacuum cleaners could con- could conveniently be used for circa July 1998. Intriguing. I-, I thought Big Macs might feature in that book as well, Daniel. <laughs> yes, oh, but I do look forward to the day when Lionel's favourite chain of motorway service stations, Sarni, famous for their, or infamous for their Fatty Furbo formula, <laughs> when they start sponsoring a cycling team. I must admit, I'm looking forward to getting back to the Giro just to give you the opportunity to take a picture of me next to the Fatty Furbo sign. Um, maybe now they have to have some kind of thinny Furbo. I don't know. Now I've lost yes, 20 kilos. What a juxtaposition <laughs> it'll be now. <laughs> oh, don't worry. I'll put it all back on with their delicious um, <laughs> slices of pizza at the service station. Anyway, yeah, you're right. The news, quite a lot going on. This week, I'll start with the Women's World Tour, the Ronde van Drenthe, which was won in a sprint by Lorena Vibus of the Netherlands. But, I mean, that doesn't really begin to tell the story of the race because it was a very aggressive attacking race and it all came back together very late on. Anuska Costa of Jumbo Visma, who'd attacked a couple of times in the closing stages, was caught in the finishing straight and Wiebus of DSM outsprinted Elisa Balsamo the world champion, a lot of good work by Pfeiffer Georgie of DSM and also Chloe Hosking of Trek for Balsamo in the lead up to that sprint. Third place went to Lotte Kapecki and she keeps her lead in the Women's World Tour after winning the opening round Strade Bianca a week or so ago. Uh, Wiebus had also won the Grand Prix Oettingen in Belgium three days earlier and is looking good for any classics that end in a sprint, I would suggest. The men's uh, Profonda van Drenthe was won by Dries van Hestel of Total Energies ahead of Barnabas Peak of Antomarche. Or is that Barnabas Payak? Payak, yeah. Uh, Hungarian rider. Ugo Ofstetter was third, and that's his fourth one-day podium finish in a row after Kerner Brussels Kerner, Le Samin, and the Grand Prix Jean-Pierre Montserrat. Um, the Vuelta have announced the wild cards for the third of the Grand Tours this season. Alpacin Phoenix and Arkea Samsic were already in, but they've been joined by three Spanish teams, Uskaltel, Equipo Kern Farmer and Burgos BH. That means no place for Cajarual, who've ridden the race every year since 2012. But this week has all been about the two week-long stage races, Paris-Nice, the race to the sun, or perhaps it should be the rog to the sun, and Tireno Adriatico, which was won by Tade Pogacar. And in this episode, we're going to talk about both of those races, but uh, ominous, really, Roglic and Pogacar both winning um, stage races. In the case of Roglic, he becomes 
one of a handful of riders to have won both Paris-Nice and Tirreno-Adriatico in their careers. A point to either of you, if you can name any of the other riders who've won both of those races. Paris-Nice and Tirreno. How many, others have, how many others have won both? Five. Uh, Alberto Contador? He is one, yes. One point to Daniel. I would suggest it. They, the majority of them would have done so in the last 15 or 20 years because it tended to be a sort of choice that that riders would stay kind of faithful to throughout their career. They either did Paris or Tirreno and they rarely crossed over. Is it going to end 1-0 to Daniel? Shall I name the others? I think for the sake of the listeners, it's going to end 1-0 to Daniel. <laughs> I mean, we can always cut out lengthy silences while you Google the answer. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I'm no, do okay. That. Well, the others, Andreas Cloden, Davide Rebelin, Tony Rominger, and Joop Zotemelk. But I tell you what would be impressive, and that is winning Paris-Nice and Tirreno-Adriatico in the same season. Not something that can currently be done without the use of some kind of time machine. And, and not even Colnago make one of those. I wouldn't put it past Pogacar next year. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thanks very much indeed to Super Sapiens, title sponsor to the Cycling Podcast. Now let's hear from the company's founder and chief executive, Phil Sutherland. I asked Phil if a year into their journey as a company, Super Sapiens had learned a lot themselves from their growing number of users. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the data that we've seen, you know, call it the big data set that we have now, over 400 million data points, you know, 1.2 million events tied to those data points. Uh, it contradicts everything in the, the textbooks, the literature. So we've got this unique opportunity to to rewrite the literature for how the human, the glucose response in the human body from events such as exercise, food, sleep, and 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 many many others. Now that's beautiful, uh, but for a young startup, you know, who's trying to base its, uh, you know, all of its education on science, that's pr- has proved a little challenging because you know the reality of what happens is different than what the literature s- says has happened. You know, we we now know that. You know, at the start of the year, we thought glucose above 120 was going to be great for performance. And it is for a lot of people. But there's also a good chunk of the population that performs really well with a glucose of 90 milligrams per deciliter. Well, in this part, we're going to be looking back at Paris-Nice. You, um, you told us that Primoz Roglic won in the last part, Lionel. But can you give us a, a bit more, can you put a bit of flesh on the bones for us before we go on to... to talk about some of the the main points from the race indeed well i'll keep it brief because i'm interested to hear daniel's thoughts from being there and your thoughts as well richard but last week we discussed the opening few days of the race and then when we left it Wout van Aert was in the leader's yellow jersey and i really thought he was on to do a sean kelly i mean with only the col de torini um as the only summit finish I mean, nothing else looked like it was going to trouble him particularly. But uh, the very next day, wasn't it? He, what happened, Daniel? He just sat up, did he? I mean, you can perhaps well, fill us in. I heard three different versions of this. Um, Grisha Neerman, the direct sportif, was sort of indignant at the suggestion 
that he had been dropped and that it had not been premeditated. Um, however, Primoz Roglic was more kind of ambiguous. Um, it was, uh, I don't know, uh, like I said, uh, it was that kind of answer from Rog. And Wout van Aert more strongly suggested that he simply hadn't felt that good and had decided to pull the oars back into the boat, as they say in Italian. Well, Roglic inherited the yellow jersey that day. It was a stage that Brandon McNulty won in very impressive fashion again, almost as if he's got his eyes on a cassoulet bowl. Um, I'm sure he's aware of the prize, and that's why he rode in such a fashion. Then there was a first pro win for Mathieu Burgadou of the Total Energies team, and then came the Col de Torini where... Uh, I thought maybe there was a hint as to Van Aert's uh, issues because uh, he had a bandage on his left knee, didn't he, that day? And I thought maybe there was uh, something up there. Um, that but- was, I believe, I, th- I think he'd had that bandage. You can correct me, Lionel, and you're probably playing, paying closer attention. Um, but he crashed in stage two, and that day at the finish, um, he had quite a bloodied knee. Uh, quite a deep cut and I, I think he was probably bandaged up for most of the week after that but I'm not entirely sure well I didn't notice it in the time trial that Van Aert won but uh, as you say he did crash earlier in the race but uh, yeah it, it was uh, it was interesting that having said that uh, Primoz Roglic didn't really need much help from uh, Wout Van Aert or indeed anyone really on the Col de Torini stage did he it was a really exciting race Danny Martinez of Ineos was up there Adam Yates as well Simon Yates of Bike Exchange and uh, Roglic well he took no prisoners there did he last year remember he came within an afternoon of winning Paris-Nice and was criticised for sort of bigfooting Gino Maida on the penultimate stage and then crashed on the final stage a couple of times very early on and and soldiered on um, looking rather forlorn with a big cut in his uh, in his shorts and uh, well lost the race on the final day Um, but uh, yeah he didn't hang around on the Col de Torini and then on the final stage Simon Yates who I thought looked good on Saturday looked even better on Sunday won the stage and Wout van Aert was back to his best doing some fantastic teamwork for Roglic but there we are Primoz Roglic won uh, his first Paris-Nice Simon Yates second, the only finisher for Bike Exchange. There's been a lot of focus on Ugo Uhl of Israel Premier Tech because he rode a few days as the only rider still in the race for Israel. But as you said, Richard, a real um, heavy toll taken by uh, predominantly illness sweeping through the peloton. Only 59 finishers, the fewest number of finishers at Paris-Nice since 1985. The only team to finish with no riders, uh, Bora Hansgrohe, uh, they had multiple riders pull out on the final stage, including Alexander Vlasov, who'd been going so-so but crashed on the final stage. And he was out. Bike Exchange were one of the teams with only one finisher, and that was Simon Yates in second place. The others, as well as Israel Premier Tech, were Antamarche, Quickstep and Astana. So uh, uh, quite a, an attritional race to the sun, or as I called it earlier, rog to the sun. Race away from the sun. Um, I mean, there's there's quite a few talking points, probably more after that final stage than we thought there would be because it was deja vu, wasn't there? Roglic looking slightly ragged and um, shades of La Planche de Belfi in, in his raggedness, I thought. Um, and, I mean, Wat Van Aert, uh, I, this is purely speculation, but 
Last year, he went to Terreno Adriatico and rode for GC, didn't he? He took on Pogacar. And, you know, I just wonder if, I, I think that his he and his team probably looked at that and, and thought it was a, you know, he finished second, I think, in the end in Terreno Adriatico last year. It was a very strong performance and result, but it maybe just took the edge off his classics campaign. You know, he wasn't quite the Van Aert of old in Milan San Remo or, or in the other spring classics, not until he came round in time for the sort of Amstel Gold race and, and Brabantse Pale. So I think he's riding a very measured kind of early spring. And, and you know, his performance on Sunday on the final stage when he helped uh, Roglic suggests that there's nothing physically wrong with him. I mean, he, he, he put in three absolutely outstanding performances, didn't he, over the course of the week, the stage one, um, the time trial, and the final day, um, maybe he even managed more than that. Am I forgetting? Well, I mean, he was up there in the in the sprints as well. But th- those three performances were really outstanding. So I don't think there's anything physically wrong with him. I think, I suspect that he was just riding in a more conservative way than he did at Torreno last year. Yeah, well, I think it was, well, it became pretty clear, certainly with hindsight, but even on the morning of the last stage, Matt White, the Bike Exchange DS, said to me that he thought, Van Aert had been rest, basically rested for two days and they, they were saving him um, Jumbo Visman for the last day and they almost anticipated that he might have to bail Roglic out and you know it's one of the peculiarities of that last stage what has become almost the traditional uh, last stage at Paris-Nice that well, it's, it usually contains numerous climbs often the cold airs and it's it's short generally but particularly this year with teams having been reduced in numbers by the the illness going around primarily. Um, it's a stage where the, the, the presence or absence of teammates is absolutely decisive and it has been consistently over the years. And that was particularly the case with Simon Yates in 2018 where he really got skewered by, well, various other teams and he lost the race. And Jumbo Visma, I think, an- anticipated Roglic coming under attack from various different directions and they knew that that was the day when Wout van Aert would have to would have to save him or or certainly protect him as he did and from that point of view the plan worked perfectly I mean I'm sort of loath to you know to, to view absolutely everything through the prism of the Tour de France but you know this weekend we were sort of I think everyone was casting their their glance and their thoughts forward to July and there was a, a sort of well, not really a head-to-head comparison because they were in on different sides of the Mediterranean but everyone was thinking about Pogacar versus Roglic who was more impressive and I'm curious to hear what you guys think about whether Roglic's credentials um, at the end of the week were enhanced or in some way dented, you know, that last day, were there a, f- a few too many echoes um, or shades of, as you say, Rich, the Planche des Belfis? It was a wobbly performance in the end, I think, and, and from the team as well, at times very strong. Ron Dennis, very impressive at, at times, and then at others, not so. Um, and, you know, for anybody uh, racing Primoz Roglic, you, you know now that he... He may come unstuck at the end. You know, that, that's been a bit of a pattern. We saw at the Vuelta as well, albeit he hung on a couple of years ago. But um, this 
Roglic is not, he, well, we'll get on to Pogacar, but Pogacar looks to me to be a, a different proposition. Um, Roglic has this tendency, it seems, to have a bad day. I mean, we shouldn't um, overlook the performance from Simon Yates, which was really impressive. Lots of lots of critics of the bike exchange kit this year, the Gerolsteiner kit, but all, all the all-blue version, fantastic. Um, and he was very impressive. I mean, he took off with almost 20 kilometers to go and and to hold off Wout van Aert and Primoz Roglic um pretty impressive performance from him um he kind of needed that I think his team certainly needed that and it augurs pretty well for him uh, for the Giro I, I would think but um yeah Roglic I mean if you if the race had ended on Saturday night as it as it as it has done in the recent past um you would have said that Roglic would have come out of the race with his reputation enhanced and no apparent weaknesses. Um, but Sunday's stage, as you say, very short, less than three hours, really aggressive, um, was almost his undoing, not quite in the end, but definitely he took, he, he, he you know, he, some, some, uh, some damage there to, to Roglic, I think. I mean, it sounds almost counterintuitive to what well, to say or even think this, but, it also occurred to me when reflecting on this stage that actually in a Tour de France, if that's what we are thinking about and talking about, it's quite rare to get a day when riders or a race leader is so reliant on his team. And, you know, as I say, we've seen this numerous occasions with Paris-Nice, the last day of Paris-Nice, um, and the way it's set up. That, and also, you know, now with Paris-Nice spending three or four days in the north of France, just south of Paris. And, you know, the, the kind of destruction wreaked by the crosswinds. By the end of the week, um, you, you get the sense that teams are almost in a, in a weaker position, more vulnerable position, and leaders are m- more f- fragile and exposed than they are at the end of a Tour de France. As I say, it's a, it's a kind of weird thing to say and to think, but it does feel like that. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that because, I mean, what a difference 24 hours makes. As you say, Rich, if... The, you know, in isolation, Roglic's performance on the Col de Torini was exceptional. I mean, he attacked with six kilometres to go and only Danny Martinez could go with him. Um, he accelerated again around two and a half to go. Um, you know, he had everybody in trouble every time he accelerated. No, Quintana was yo-yoing off and on the back, wasn't he? Martinez was pulling all kinds of faces. Um, the, the two Yates brothers were having difficulty. And then when it came to the finish line, Roglic was really, really fast. And I just wonder whether that's more representative of a Tour de France style climb than perhaps the final stage of Paris-Nice, which is this sort of, well, it's it's a kind of fun fair almost, isn't it? A, a roller coaster of up and down, left and right. Um, as you say, easier to isolate a, a rider who doesn't have teammates um, on those roads. And Simon Yates put him under incredible pressure. And I also think that Yates is perhaps uh, maybe not two months ahead of Roglic in terms of where he needs to be. But Simon Yates' focus is all on the Giro d'Italia, which starts in two months' time. Primoz Roglic is playing a longer game. His focus will be on the Tour de France in July. And yet Roglic did hang on. You know, yes, it was close enough in the end, but um, he did hold on. There was a bit of a wobble. It wasn't, uh, you know, I suppose on on Saturday night, he looked like Pogacar and on Sunday night, he looked like Roglic. Perhaps that sums it up. 
Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton. Cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Noom. If you've been listening to the podcast over the last few months, you'll know I signed up for Noom back in September. Uh, initially because I wanted to lose a bit of weight. I'd hit 90 kilograms and I didn't feel particularly good and I thought that losing a bit of weight might help me feel better and I wasn't wrong. Six months later, I've lost almost 20 kilograms. I've transformed my diet in lots of small but manageable ways and I'm enjoying cycling and running a lot more than I was previously, that's for sure. Now, I've lost that weight and six months have passed and you might wonder why am I still using the new map? Well, very simply, just to keep me on track and make sure that I don't stray from those good principles that I feel that I have learned but I need a little bit of encouragement sometimes to just stick to. A case in point being my recent trip to Italy to go and cover Strade Bianche. What I didn't want to do was spend all weekend counting the calories, denying myself the delights of Tuscan cuisine. I wanted to be able to enjoy the antipasti and the pasta and the pizza over the weekend. What I did though was I kept a track of what I was consuming so that I had a rough idea what I needed to do over the next week to 10 days. And since I've been home, I've just gradually nudged things back in the right direction and uh, compensated for a little bit of overindulgence over the weekend in Italy. And that's how I've been using the app. It's changed my thinking. Rather than thinking that a weekend of eating lovely food is blowing my diet out of the water and that I've uh, set myself back, I've decided to take the longer view and look at that week in the context of a fortnight or three weeks. And the results have been well, they've been that I haven't really put on any weight. I've managed to keep within the parameters that I've set myself. And so overall, I've found the benefits of the new map to be considerable. And it might work for you. It might not be for you. But if you want to give it a try, go to noom.com slash cycle. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash cycle and sign up for your trial today. That's noom.com slash cycle. Well, chaps, the fact is that Primoz Roglic did get it done. And amid all the well, the number crunching and um, the talk of the number of races, stage races in particular, that Tadej Pogacar has already won after he won at Torino um, at the weekend. You know, the, Primoz Roglic's record, I've talked about it many times on the podcast, it is just staggering. And we almost do take for granted that he's going to win these stage races. But... Um, I talked a lot last year about this unbroken record that he had of having worn the yellow jersey or the leader's jersey in every stage race he'd done since the 2018 Tour de France. Now, he didn't win or he didn't wear the yellow jersey at all in the 2021 Tour de France. But if you take the Tour de France out of the equation, um, he has now worn the leader's jersey in every stage race he has done since the 2018 Tirreno Adriatico. And yet it was the first time he's won Paris-Nice quite surprisingly um yeah i mean he did he did win and and it's um unfortunate to be sort of focusing too much on the on the slight wobble on sunday because in the end he did enough to hang on and and win i I just wonder though i mean he does give quite increasingly honest candid interviews doesn't he Uh, he 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 does he um he's not always entirely on message i mean what what was hit you would have spoken to him every day Daniel, what was your sense uh, from him on Sunday after that stage about, you know, how, how he'd felt? Because I felt that he was even more 
in what I saw, even more open than he was at La Plange de Belfi, where it was, it, the line there was that he hadn't had a bad day and he'd had a quite a good day and Pogacar just had an exceptional day. But I think on Sunday he admitted that, you know, he wasn't quite feeling it that day. Yeah, I think there was a suggestion from him as well that he'd overheated. There was this issue of this speculation about whether he should have been um, punished, possibly even disqualified for multiple littering offences. Um, there was, <laughs> I think there was one instance where he, he might have thrown away a gel wrapper or, um, or a bottle and then a, a second time where he threw, two, two leg warmers where he threw away leg war- yeah where he threw away clothing and I know that that was noted in the chief commissaire's car at the time I fully expected him to get a 500 Swiss franc fine because of that there was nothing on the communique after the race which surprised me two two instances of littering should would um, have caused his disqualification but he certainly did refer to the fact that he'd overheated and I suppose that speaks to how intense the racing was I mean if you imagine um, you know racing I don't know how many hours they raced for on Sunday but having not had a single moment in his mind um, to to even take off arm warmers or leg warmers if he was getting hot I mean that shows um, just how focused these guys are and how intense the effort is at times um, but in terms of his you know, his appearances in the mix zone. I mean, just generally thinking about Jumbo Visma at Paris-Nice, it occurs to me that year after year, they are sort of dialing everything in and they're getting closer and closer and they're assembling more and more pieces of the jigsaw. And I think Rowan Dennis is definitely a piece of the jigsaw. I think they're probably stronger than last year. They've lost George Bennett. Um, they've they've taken on Dennis. They've taken on Tish Benut. They've got other riders who are older and more experienced. What that's going to mean for their Tour de France team, I'm not sure. I mean, Stephen Kreiswijk has been a sort of shooing for the Tour de France last few years. He's had so much bad luck over um, recent seasons. And again, he crashed at Paris-Nice and had a rib injury. And he wasn't himself. But I think he, whether he goes to the Tour de France or not, that's that's up for debate. Um, I, I, it, it may be that Roglic is still a climber short or that... Um, you know, when it gets to the Tour de France, there are there are still days where we feel that he's a climber short. Uh, I'm not sure. But also in that process of, of them just getting closer and closer to the goal and closer and closer to perfection. I mean, again, we've talked about this before, but Primoz Roglic's transformation as a media personality and what that does for him and what that does for his stress levels and the team's stress levels is just phenomenal to observe. I mean... You know, it, it's in the best possible way when he comes into the mix zone every day. It's a clown show. I mean, he just wants every every question is answered with some kind of quip or joke, um, which has the effect of diffusing or serving to diffuse whatever kind of tension is being created around him. And often it kind of throws us off the scent as journalists as well. Sometimes, you know, he'll disarm you or he will bat back something which could be quite a probing question with a with a gag with a joke and that makes you more inclined to just to really not pursue that line of questioning and um you know as a as a media strategy i don't know how contrived it is i don't know how many discussions have taken place behind the scenes about this at yumbo visma but it is brilliant and a lot of other riders could learn an awful i'm not going to mention names but there were some at paranese who um, and some teams at paranese who could learn a lot from that from that you say a transformation it really is a transformation i remember the 2019 vuelta where which he eventually won sometime towards the end of the first week he came back to the bus after the um, after the finish, 
And the sum total of his comments to the, the journalists gathered around the team bus was 38 seconds. Uh, that was how long my audio file was. And that included the kind of the silency bit and the question. I mean, it was literally a sort of, you know, single figures word answer before he turned on his heels and, and went into the bus. I mean, he just wasn't playing the game at all. He wasn't engaging. It, it, it was basically uh, short of a flat refusal. It was uh, non-participation in the, uh, the the media kind of obligations, I guess, because even though that's not in the mix zone, that is still part of the game, isn't it? And I think you're right, Daniel. I mean, he just looks like he hasn't got a care in the world when, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's, and he's playing the game on his um, terms, I suppose, is is what I would interpret from that. We mentioned, we went slightly off piece a couple of weeks ago and we started talking about speed skating, didn't we, in the Winter Olympics and this... Um, well, namesake of the very famous cyclist Mathieu van der Poel, but Niels van der Poel, this um, sort of Norwegian phenomenon, and this 66-page or whatever it was manifesto of how to become that he'd written and posted online about how to become a world champion speed skater or Olympic medalist, and and it, it was curious, interesting that that included a passage that he'd written out his sort of um, 10 cardinal rules for dealing with the media, and he talked about the use of humour as well, and that shows an a huge amount of sort of self-awareness for a young, um, uh, you know, a 20, 20 something athlete. I don't know how, what he kind of media teams these guys have in speed skating, but we know in cycling that, um, that certainly there are media departments, communication departments in teams, but it is true that humor is such a powerful tool. Again, in terms of, I feel with Roglic and Jumbo Visma, it has, it has just created so much more of a relaxed atmosphere around those moments in the day when they do have to interact interact with the public and and that will that will help them for a couple of years um the team kept saying oh, he's a really funny guy behind the scenes he's really funny and really likable and we never saw that side of his character because he treated the media with slight bemusement almost and i mean i you know when i went out to the training camp in uh whatever year it was we did our special episode on yumbo visma chasing team sky i think it was the end of 2018 um I did an interview with Roglic and it was it was hard going, you know, it was hard work. I did an interview with him a couple of weeks ago on the phone, which is never ideal, but um, I, and the interview was a bit stilted in places, but it was it was far more relaxed. And I could sort of sense from him on the other end of the line that he was he he wasn't trying to trip me up or anything. He, he was he was going with it and, and he was dropping in the odd kind of quite funny line, which sometimes you only you only kind of clock when you listen back to it later um and he's just relaxed into that role hasn't he and and i think we are now seeing what the team has seen for for many years um i don't know if there are any other talking points from parry nice one one thing that caught my eye on sunday um when a, a very small group came to the finish to sprint it out for fourth on the stage brandon mcnulty uh, was fourth on the stage but he was in a, a very small select group and there was a big rider in that group from Groupama FDG. And I thought, who is that? Stefan Kuhn. And it was, you know, a tough, really hilly stage. He is a big rider. Uh, he finished among, you know, whippet-like climbers. And I just thought, there's a guy who's going, going really well and maybe somebody to look out for in the classics. Yeah, there were a few other pointers like that. And um, we also had a couple of relatively instructive sprint finishes and um, we talked didn't we a couple of weeks ago about 
the, the Fabio Jakobsen, Mark Cavendish question for De Koenig quick step. And the, the, we said that this was going to be a key week because Cavendish was at Tirreno and Jakobsen was at Paris. I think it's been a bit lopsided, the sort of the opportunities that they've each had because Jakobsen has really had the, the A team, just in terms not only of leading him out, but the the bit before the lead out, the sort of last five kilometres of stages. And that said, um, he did look he did look very good at Paris Nice. Yeah, we've talked about Simon Yates and his performance over the week. We mentioned it last week, Richard, just how impressive he was in the time trial. I know it had that uphill finish, didn't it? And I know the Giro hasn't got a huge number of time trialing kilometres, but enough Wait, which time trial the one on thursday or the one on sunday <laughs> yeah we're quite exactly he did a sort of 20k time trial on sunday but the uh, the one earlier in the race was a little bit shorter than that not a huge number of kilometers in uh, the giro in the time trials but enough that if it's a close race a narrow race it could all come down to verona uh, i thought that was really an encouraging sign and i thought ineos grenadiers with uh, danny martinez and adam yates finishing third and fourth you know they they really um, tried to take on the racing and naira quintana was uh well he wasn't quite able to stay on the wheels when it really mattered but he fought like a, a what well tiger i was going to say is that is that right? I don't know. But he really didn't um, didn't give up. But I was also impressed with some of his teammates. Uh, you know, Nicola Eddy was doing a lot of work early in stages on a couple of the days. And just seeing, you know, him, he's been at Cofidis for a long time and no real defined role other than kind of going away in the breakaways, it seemed to me. And uh, I, I suppose it was just noticeable noticeable that he was performing a different role and doing it very well. Uh, David Godu, Daniel, I don't know what um, whether you had any info on what was wrong with him, but uh, sort of seemed to be going okay and, and then didn't finish the race. Likewise, Pierre Latour started the week very well and really fell away over the, the last few days. So it uh, seemed like perhaps... Um, uh, problems for both of those French riders. Well, Group Armour have had a pretty disastrous start to the season, or certainly not the best start to the season, and it was kind of summed up by something that happened in the mix zone on Saturday when Kevin Genietz, the Luxembourg champion, arrived, and it was pretty windy in the centre of Nice, and then a sponsor's board blew over not for the first time i mean these sponsors boards now are a bit of a fixture in these mix zones that we've had since the start of the covid pandemic and that we've seen them blow over on numerous occasions and this one did just as geniettes was was riding past um he he then sort of received medical treatment and we thought he was fine in the end, 10, 15 minutes later. It was a bit like, what's the James Brown video where he sort of gets up wrapped in a blanket and he says that he's okay to... I mean, and he, Lionel, he sort of this is where Lionel should, should treat us to his fantastic James Brown impression. No, absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> we save not. up for a friend special. <laughs> what's, the, what's the song, Lionel? What's the video that I'm thinking of? Um, very famous. Um, he seems to be injured and then... Um, yeah, he proceeds to deliver a, a tour de force. Um, anyway, um, unfortunately, that wasn't the case for Genietz because he did he did make it to the start line, but didn't make it all the way through the through the neutralised zone. So, yeah, tough week for them. Although Thibaut Pino was riding encouragingly in Tirreno. Um, just going back to Ineos quickly. 
I think I think Danny Martinez is is staking a claim. Certainly, last year he starred as a domestique, um, very instrumental at the Giro. But he could well line up at the Tour de France as one of their. Well, but it's probably going to be another trident of sorts. So again, another troika like we've seen before. Um, maybe with this year with Geraint Thomas and Adam Yates again at the Tour de France, I, I suppose. I feel I perhaps did Pierre Latour a little bit of disservice saying he was good in the first half of the race and then fell away in the second because he's actually lying third going into the Col de Torini stage on Saturday, faltered a little bit there and then slipped down uh, even further and finished 14th overall, had a, a, a bad final day. But um, a, some good signs, but perhaps just, uh, I don't know, coming down with the flu maybe. I don't want to speculate here, but... Um, yeah, not a good end to, of the race for him. And I don't know what you made of Alexander Vlasov, who was kind of, well, he wasn't looking as good as he'd looked at, um, where was it, Valenciana at uh, the start of the season and even in the UAE tour. I mean, I, I know this is a level up um, and he was very unfortunate, crashed on the final day. That's why he didn't finish. But um, I, I expected a little bit more from him on the uh, climbing stages, I suppose. Well, yeah, I think it was probably a really difficult week for him mentally um, at the start of Paris. I sort of heard murmurs that he wasn't going to address the the Russian invasion of Ukraine at all. That he didn't want to talk about it. That wasn't the case. He was quite happy. Well, happy. Um, he was willing to talk about it in the mix zone before the first stage got quite a lot of questions about it but um, I think two or three days in he was still getting questions about it and was getting pretty fed up and his performances may I'm not sure I don't have any information about this specific information but they may have been affected by um, the, the turmoil I guess that's that's been caused over the last week or so for Russian athletes. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Big thanks to Science in Sport for their support of the Cycling Podcast. If you would like 25% off all your Science in Sport products, you can, of course, go to scienceinsport.com and at the checkout, use the code SISCP25. You'll get 25% off any products that aren't already discounted. I just got my latest delivery of Science in Sport products. Um, big up for the chocolate fudge energy bar delicious and even better a treat when i get home the salted caramel protein bar for for having post ride and and actually um some of this is on the advice of uh, somebody i've been speaking to with regards to my super sapiens readings uh sort of mixing up sponsors there but um they obviously complement each other very well. And uh, I'm, I've been reviewing my fueling strategy and uh, hence the recovery bars. So they're they're highly recommended. And a reminder, 25% off all your science and sport products at sciencesport.com with the code SISCP25. Well, um, gentlemen, on to Terreno Adriatico. Uh, quick stop. Some of this w- quick stop in. Sorry. Quick stop in clarifications corner first. The James Brown performance I was referring to is a please, 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 and I think I don't know whether he did it on numerous occasions, but it was at the Teenage Music International show in 1964 in Santa Monica. If anyone wants to look that up, um, gives me an excuse to mention Lionel's impression again. Um, still don't think he's going to treat us to it, but. 
friend of yours, Lionel, got a plane with James Brown once, and you you did an impression of James Brown on that plane journey, which is very very good. Up there with your Alex Dowsett impression, and just behind Daniel's Roglic, Mark Cavendish, but right at the top, I would put your Shane Sutton, Lionel. Um, so that's the league table of impressions. I don't feature on it anywhere because I'm not I'm not very good at them. <laughs> but you two are very good oh, at dear. impressions. I, I'm um, terrible do... when put on the spot. I can only do them entirely spontaneously and without thinking. Whereas, well, I, whereas I Daniel fantastic... can sum them up. He can switch characters. Yeah. Like He could do a sort of one-man show, a Peloton one-man show with all of these characters coming. Max Chiandri is another one that Daniel is. I mean, the first yes. time I heard Daniel's Max Chiandri impression, I could close my eyes and think that is Max Chiandri speaking. Well, I, I did, I must say, I did a fantastic Tadej Pogacar impression yesterday on my local climb, uh, where I, with the help of a generous tailwind, I, I romped up it, and um, I was only 10 seconds behind David Godou up there, and it is a very short climb, I'll admit, but I'm number one in my, in my weight, in my weight category, in the 85 to 95 kilo category, I'm number one up there. Godou's so. heart rate was 43 at the time. It's 43 beats per minute. <laughs> that could well be right. I suspect that is right. Anyway, um, Terreno Adriatico, all, all about today, Pogacar, really. And we're going to be talking quite a lot about Pogacar in the next episode coming later this week, looking ahead to Milan San Remo. Um, what were your thoughts watching it from a distance, Lionel? Um, Terreno Adriatico in particular. I mean, can you give us the... You've given us the, the, the bare bones again, as you did with Paris in the news roundup, but w- what else happened over the course of the week? Well, I can't remember where we got to last week, but uh, Tadej Pogacar took the lead, didn't he, on stage four by winning the stage in really very impressive fashion. Really, from that point on, the race was a done deal. Um, what else did we see? Well, we saw another victory for Pogacar on Saturday. We saw Warren Barguil's first World Tour win since 2017. We saw Remco Evenepoel go off course um, and take a few riders off course when they were chasing Barguil at one point as well. And the final stage, which I thought was a little bit of a damp squib, when you compare the way Paris-Nice finished to the way that Tirreno Adriatico finished with a, a kind of all the climbing in the front half of the stage and then a, a sprint finish, not taking anything away from Phil Bauhaus's win for Bahrain victorious. but um, And there's not really much that can be done about the geography of Italy. That's just what the countryside around San Benedetto del Tronto is like, isn't it? Um, they can't st- sort of summon up a, a mountain no, to finish on. Um, no, but there's plenty of hilly terrain on the Adriatic side of Italy. I mean, that the only proviso of that race is it goes from the Adriatic to Tyrrhenian Sea. Sorry, the other way around, Tyrrhenian to the Adriatic. Um, but they, the organisers have had this deal with um, San, San Benedetto for many years, so I guess they're doomed to finish. You were thinking there of Adriatico Terreno, oh, yes, uh, exactly. Daniel, a race that never really never got existed. going. Never no, no go back again maybe yeah they could just turn around and go back again uh what else did we see well quinn it could, yeah, it could be called terreno adriatico terreno yeah or just yeah and then back again just carry on change around one year adriatico terreno i'm liking the sound of that i mean i don't know what would be terribly different about it it would just be going in the opposite direction wouldn't it would it be going against the prevailing wind i, I don't know who knows um anyway what else did we see we saw quinn simmons on the attack a couple of days um, and he did enough to win the King of the Mountains jersey, preventing Pogacar from doing a, 
a complete sweep of the jerseys. Uh, the rest of the overall podium was uh, filled by Jonas Vingegaard, last year's Tour de France runner-up, and Mikael Lander, who declared himself very pleased with his week's riding. Um, but we're not going to go into too much detail about Tadej Pogacar's win because in the next episode we'll be talking about Pogacar and uh, well this incredible streak he's on. It struck me today that uh, if he wins Milan Sanremo on Saturday, he'll have won on three consecutive Saturdays in Italy, won't he? Strade Bianche, Tirreno Adriatico's uh, penultimate stage, and then Milan Sanremo. It's got to be um, well, got to be not beyond the realms of possibility that Pogacar could win Milan-San Remo. But rather than that, I was going to ask you, Richard, in a snap, first answer that comes into your head, which was better, Paris-Nice or Tirreno-Adriatico this week uh, in terms of the course? Paris-Nice. In terms of the time trial stages? Paris-Nice. In terms of the weather? Oh, um, Tirreno. In terms of the sprints? Paris-Nice. In terms of the climbing stages? Paris-Nice. And in terms of the look of the leaders' jerseys, not just the overall leaders' jerseys, but the whole family of jerseys. Terreno Adriatico. Absolutely correct answer there, because the Paris-Nice ones are now just a kind of pale imitation of the Tour de France, aren't they, really? Uh, well, I think that just about gives the nod to Paris-Nice this year. I'll tell you what, I wasn't there, but I bet the food was better at Terreno. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have some shoppers? On the subject of leaders, well, I have to say the night we were in Orléans, we had a fantastic meal, Daniel. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it was okay. Um, it was okay. Was, it was delicious. Yeah. No, it was good. It was good. And here's my last question, um, because we this question about Paris Nice and Torino Adriatico is the age-old one, isn't it, about which is better as preparation for Milan San Remo. We might talk about that in the next episode. But here's my question. Would Pogacar have beaten Roglic at Paris Nice? And would Roglic have beaten Pogacar at Tirreno Adriatico? Or if they'd gone head to head, would Pogacar have won both of them? That's the question. The answer to your questions are yes, no, and yes. <laughs> I think. So to tell you what, on what count Tirreno did win, whimsical flaneuring, because I was very happy to see Warren Bargill on the top of a podium again. And there was a very charming interview with him in. Well, charming. If you're into the sort of the myth, the legend, the kind of mystique of the whimsical flaneur, the, Which the dandelion you are, picker, Daniel. the uh, ramasseur de pissenlit, dandelion picker, as we called him before as well. Um, yeah, infuriating probably if you're maybe his team manager, um, who his team, I think, paid him pretty handsomely over the last three years. But, you know, he talked about um, how, you know, when his friends want to go out for a meal, um, he can't he can't bring himself to say no and he just wants to live a kind of normal life and and still but still uh, just go roller skating in, with his girlfriend well yeah Brittany. still ride his bike in the daytime because riding his bike is basically what he likes to do um but yeah um that kind of sums up Warren Bargill you know and great that someone like that does have the talent to still thrive and still win every now and again but alas he's probably not going to ever challenge well, certainly not anytime soon. Um, Tadej Pogacar living the life that he does. But, uh, you know, all the power to you, Warren. I mean, I thought you were also maybe going to mention Thibaut Pino there, who seemed to rediscover something uh, at Treno Adriatico. And I think he he feels pretty happy with his performance there. He finished in the end eighth overall, pretty decent and, and rode well. And I think that would be great for his 
confidence. Just ahead of him, Timon Aronsman, a young rider of whom a lot is expected. Roman Bardet at Team DSM, sort of shepherding him through some of the stages. He's he's quite a, a big guy. He finished second to uh, Tari Pogacar in 2018 at the Tour de l'Avenir, and he's still a young rider, obviously 22 now. Um, very, very promising, and that was a very good result for him and much needed by his team as well, wasn't their it? And best, their best result prior to that was a ninth place this year. Mm, yeah, they've not had a great start to the year. Um, Remco Evenepoel, uh, you know, held his hand up, didn't he, and said that he'd been disappointed and disappointing, uh, not not what he came to Torino Adriatico for. He's still very young as well, of course, um, still learning. And we do also expect an awful lot of him and you know Richie Port um, at the other end of the age spectrum at the end of his career um, pretty gutsy performance from, from Richie Port to be up there over the over the week and finish fourth overall curious curious I thought and I don't have any info on this um, maybe we can check but curious that Richie chose to ride Tirreno in what mm. I think is going to be his last year as a professional when Paris-Nice was always kind of his race, a race he's won in the past, and he also lives in the Nice or close to Nice. Although he is um, riding the Giro this year, isn't he? And I just wondered, a lot of riders doing the Giro do tend to favour Tirreno Adriatico, not not Simon Yates, obviously, but um, a lot of them do tend to follow an Italian programme, don't they, in the build-up to the Giro. Maybe that's just to become more acquainted with Italian roads, Italian food. Uh, I don't know. Well, I don't know, but could that not be... A factor. I know they all bring. Menu, I know they all bring their, their own menu food. reading skills. <laughs> <laughs> I know they bring their own food, so that's maybe not a factor. But Italian roads could be an issue. I mean, you asked me all these questions, Lionel. Did my answers tally with your answers? Were you broadly in agreement with that, or any? areas of disagreement oh, well, I couldn't quite work out the answer but I assume you thought that Pogacar would have beaten Roglic in uh, Paris-Nice had they lined yeah, up yeah but I mean in general but, the, oh, yeah, the, no, the whole I, quit in terms of the two races yeah I thought Paris-Nice was a better addition this year I think um, there was something slightly lacking from Tirreno Adriatico having said that I did like the fact that they finished at the same time I, I've never really that comfortable with the way they overlapped. I don't know why uh, the the rhythm of the two races didn't sort of fit together terribly well. Um, But as a sort of television spectacle, watching the end of one and then going straight into the end of the other, um, it worked well uh, to have the the races both finish on the same day. Um, And I think it does give a much more direct comparison. You can weigh up who was going well and, and who wasn't. Uh, going well. I mean, I know it's only a few days um, difference, but um, the uh, looking at the GCs of the the two races, you'd have to you could sort of come to a, an accumulative or um, a sort of crossover GC, and I suppose the podium from the week would be Pogacar, Roglic, Simon Yates for the three, the top three, just edging out. Vingegaard, I think, because I thought Yates was more impressive in Paris-Nice than Vingegaard was in Tirreno Adriatico. But um, the more fascinating question is, what does this now mean looking ahead to Milan-San Remo? And, um, you know, does the shift of dates for Tirreno Adriatico actually mean anything in the, the grander scheme of things? And I guess we'll discuss that in the next episode. Yeah, hold those thoughts, Lionel. We'll be back later this week uh, to look ahead to Milan San Remo and, and some of the issues around Pogacar's recent 
domination and and you know asking the question whether that can and will continue in Milan Sanremo on Saturday at the first monument of the season um, but that's all for this episode thank you very much Lionel thank you Richard thank you Daniel thank you Charlie